The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Susan Carlson. She is the Associate Dean for Research at the University of Kansas School of Health Professions. She is a distinguished professor and the A.J. Rice Professor of Nutrition in the KU Department of Dietetics and Nutrition at the KU Medical Center. Dr. Carlson's research includes the effects of fatty acids that compose a large percent of brain membranes that are found in human milk, but not in vegetable oils that are typically used in the production of U.S. infant formulas. She studies the effects of docosa hexanoic acid, better known as DHA, supplementation of infants and pregnant women to evaluate the effects on visual development and behavior of infants, toddlers, and eventually preschoolers. Her work is recognized nationally and internationally for her pioneering work in identifying DHA as a conditionally essential nutrient for developing infants. And significant highlights include adding DHA to U.S. infant formulas in 2002. So that was a direct result of her wonderful research. She's received numerous awards, including from the March of Dimes, her award for outstanding achievement in the field of maternal and fetal nutrition. Dr. Carlson, welcome. Yes, thank you very much, Melinda. I appreciate being asked to speak today. And I just want to say up front that I cannot take sole credit for the addition to infant formula, although I'd like to think I played a part in that. But as you know, in research, many people contribute to these ideas and and that's the way it should be because we we want to have solid evidence before we make changes. That's exactly right. But your role was certainly significant. And I remember hearing you speak at the University of Missouri when I was in Nutritional Sciences Extension, and your presentation really impressed me. And I thought, I'm going to find out if you're still doing this research, and indeed you are, and I am delighted. But let me ask you first, how did you become interested in this area of research? Well, I think there was a a good deal of serendipity in this. I actually started out in my PhD and my first postdoctoral fellowship looking at cardiovascular disease indicators, of course, in animal models. But when I got the chance to go to the University of South Florida in the pediatric department, I had the chance for the first time to look at some of the effects of fats that were in infant formula, and at the time there were very different levels in the different formulations that were being fed to infants. And so I was really thinking of it as a cardiovascular project. Gee, what's going to happen to the lipids in those babies' blood? Mm-hmm. Because they're on these formulations for long periods of time without other food. Surprisingly, what we found was that the membrane levels of the formula fed infants looked pretty similar But compared to human milk-fed babies, they had very low levels of the long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And I'm talking about docosahexanoic acid and arachidonic acid, those two N3 and N6 fatty acids that respectively that were added to infant formulas around 2002 in the United States. Mm 
But that began kind of an odyssey for me because I found some work from about that same time in primates where they showed that omega-3s were incredibly important to have the amount of DHA in the brain that was appropriate. And then I found some other work that showed from Tom Clendenin's group in Toronto that showed that babies are born uh, with very low levels of DHA in their brain. In fact, there's almost none in the brain before 21 weeks gestation. Well, that was about the time that we were starting to see the neonatologist save the lives of 22-week gestation babies, and I thought, wow, that's where I need to be looking. I need to be studying preterm babies. And so I spent a number of years in associated with neonatology units studying giving DHA to preterm babies, seeing if we could improve their status, seeing if we could improve their function. Of course, as you might imagine, there's a very large difference between a baby who gets no DHA after being born at 23 to 24 weeks and a baby who gets a DHA because the blood levels were higher, the functional benefits were easy to show. And so that's kind of how it all started But when I came to Kansas City, I didn't have access to preterm babies anymore, and I began to think pregnancy is an easier model. It's easier to study the last trimester of brain development in babies who are staying in their mom for the last three months, not Mm -hmm. not in the NICU, exposed to all the issues that can happen to a preterm baby. So I began studying pregnancy at that time, and, and that was when I began to collaborate with Dr. John Colombo, We have a full team of principal investigators now that include biostatistician uh, Byron Gajewski and an electrophysiologist, Kathleen Gustafson, and John Colombo and myself. And so we each have our own strengths, and it's been just a, a really wonderful collaboration. And what a difference your research is making. So now most of the infant formula that is available to women... And of course, we would hope that they would breastfeed, but in the situation that they don't, they will rely on infant formula. Is most infant formula now in the United States supplemented with DHA? That is correct. The infant formula is from the major companies, certainly, that most people use and that the WIC program uses do have DHA. I do have to point out that there are differences. One of the formulations, the Similac formulation, has a much lower level than the Enfamil product, for example. And there is a belief among those who have been doing the studies that we should be adding about 03 to 0.35% of total fatty acids as DHA. And that is actually true of most of the formulas on the market, with the exception of the one company that I mentioned. And I would say that it's also, even though all human milk has DHA, There was a study done by Craig Jensen a number of years ago that showed giving a woman 200 milligrams per day of DHA as a supplement during lactation will bring her milk level up to that 0.3 to 0.35%. So we recommend that women who are breastfeeding continue to take at least a couple hundred milligrams of DHA during their lactation. And that's really not that much when you consider it. And are you also looking at, you know, most of the supplements that you see on the market They're not purely DHA. They're usually DHA plus EPA or maybe even ALA. 
Do you have any recommendations about that for women looking at supplements? The supplement that really counts for, as far as our studies, because we've done supplementation with an algal form that provides DHA but not EPA, Mm -hmm. and so we believe it's the DHA that is important during pregnancy and during early life. That's not to say there's a problem if there's a little bit of EPA in there. The ALA is really not going to be converted to DHA, and we know that from many years of studies. Right. That's right. And that's a problem because for women who are vegetarians, for example, who might not want to take fish oil per se, you say you're using an algal form of DHA. There are some vegetarian-based formulations for women who are vegetarians? That is correct. The algal form is it's a microalgae. It's a plant. And so vegan, even vegan vegetarians can consume that source of DHA. Okay. And I think that's been recommended. I think many vegans are aware that DHA is important and they've sought out that source. But if they aren't aware, they should be looking mm-hmm. into that. Now, tell me, in your experience in working with pregnant women, do most physicians, gynecologists, obstetrics and gynecologists, do they understand the importance of DHA? Is it pretty much routine now in medical schools? Do doctors counsel pregnant women routinely about the importance of taking DHA? In our experience, probably not. I do want to point out that much of the nutrition counseling that is given to pregnant women comes from maybe the nurse that sees them. I don't know across the country to what degree physicians are actually talking to pregnant women about nutrition. And I think that is one of the issues that we're trying to address as we now become fairly certain from the Cochrane Review that shows DHA can reduce preterm birth to Mm -hmm. try to get that message out to those who are seeing pregnant women. But the interesting thing to me has been that the supplement companies began putting DHA into prenatal supplements. And my last trip to the drugstore when I checked these things, it was hard for me to find a prenatal that didn't have a couple hundred milligrams of DHA. So sometimes the science goes more hand-in-hand with the industry than it does with the medical practice. Mm -hmm. I tend to think some women are more aware of DHA and its importance during pregnancy than the physicians that are actually taking care of women. Right. And I'm assuming that most of the supplement companies want to make sure that they are going to be able to say that they have an edge, you know, that they've got the supplement assortment that is going to be best for moms. So I can see how they all race to do that. I want to know about the relationship of DHA and preventing preterm birth. I think this is fascinating. We know that preterm births cost billions of dollars in healthcare dollars. We want to prevent preterm birth as much as we can. You also mentioned to me in a previous email that African-American women are more prone to having preterm birth. So let's dive into this issue. First of all, why do you think preterm births are higher among African-American women? If I had the answer to that question, I would probably be very famous. Yeah. I don't think we know the reason for that. We do know. I just looked at the 2018, which are the latest statistics that I can get from the CDC. African-Americans still have preterm births at 
150% of the level of non-African American women, and that includes Latinas. Mm. Some people have speculated it could be stress. There just really is, it's not known, and it's not totally related to socioeconomic status because even African-American women who are in higher SES groups still tend to have a higher percentage of preterm births. Mm. But where it becomes really, because the preterm births, we could maybe talk about that a little bit. A preterm birth is anything that occurs before 37 weeks gestation. But we commonly now talk about early preterm birth, which is before 34 weeks, and late preterm birth, which is after 34 weeks. And while you don't want to have a late preterm birth because there's still some issues associated with 34 to 37, the difference in hospital time, stress to the parents, and cost is dramatically different. The babies are born less than 34 weeks may spend, on average, say, 40 days in the hospital, and those born later may be 10. And that's where the big costs come in. And also, of course, the longer babies are in the hospital, the more likely other issues can happen, like infection and so on. Right. And then there are the long-term consequences of being a preterm baby in terms of less advantageous developmental milestones. So maybe that is another area where the DHA supplementation can help bring a preterm baby up more towards a normal term baby. Would you say that? Well, that was, ironically, my work has kind of come full circle because we were first interested in how do we improve the brains of these babies that are being born early and by putting DHA and arachidonic acid in there. And I think that the results were that it was beneficial mm-hmm. to the brain, to the brain development. And the preterm formulas do have DHA and arachidonic acid now, so that's good. And there's also a lot of use of human milk in preterm babies, which, which is, again, a good thing. Right. But in some ways, it, it kind of turned, and, and where I found myself working first with preterm babies trying to improve their DHA status, just again another serendipitous finding that we had in our 2006 study was that when we gave pregnant women DHA, their rate of having these preterm babies dropped dramatically. Wow. So DHA has become my fascination from that perspective now. Uh, there is a Cochrane review that was released in November 2018 that concluded that it was definite, that it was unnecessary to do further studies, that DHA could reduce early preterm birth, those births before 34 weeks, by 42%. Wow. And since then, a large trial in Australia has been published, the ORIP trial, with 5,500 or so women. We have another trial underway that has completed recruitment with 1,100 women here in the United States. And we are waiting, in September, we will have our last delivery. And it is also designed to look at, can DHA reduce birth before 34 weeks? The thing that's interesting in both of these trials, the ORIP trial in Australia and ours, is that we are doing them, we began those trials about 10 years after the early trials that showed a reduction in early preterm births. So women are entering pregnancy with a much better DHA status, at least from our analysis. I'm not saying in all groups necessarily. 
And I think African-American women are one of the groups that we really need to target and get the message across mm-hmm. because not only do they have the highest rate of early preterm birth, but they also are the least likely to take the supplements. Mm. Yeah. And we learned that in our 2006 trial. So I've been spending a lot of time here at the end of my career trying to figure out how do I work with people to do what we call implementation science, which is how do we get the message across of the good news that we learn in our studies to people so that they actually do what the studies suggest they should. Right. That's always a challenge in, in all kinds of nutrition and health is we've got the science and then we need the education and implementation. Dr. Carlson, I need to take one break and let our listeners know that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Susan Carlson. She is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Kansas School of Health Professions, Distinguished Professor and A.J. Rice Professor of Nutrition in the KU Department of Dietetics and Nutrition at KU Medical Center. And she is an expert on DHA and preterm and infants and brain development, eye development. It's fascinating research. I've been interested in fatty acids for a long time, but didn't realize the importance of getting DHA into women who were pregnant and breastfeeding and infants. Now, a couple of questions. Have you been able to target African-American women specifically for your research? So you've got like an at-risk population that you're specifically treating? Well, I would say, in so in, in 2006, the trial that we did in 2006 to 2009 was called the KUDOS trial. It had about 35% or around 100 African-American women in it. So it was actually fairly high. I think the trial we're doing now has about 25%, so there'll be about 250 to 300 African-American women in that trial. We are going to be looking at this by race to see if it makes a difference. Hopefully, DHA reduces early preterm birth in African-American women as well as non-African-American women. But when I said before that there was some concern about taking the supplement, Mm. it seemed to me that in our earliest earlier trial, it was the African-American women whose DHA levels did not go up when they were assigned to DHA, which was a sign of they weren't taking the DHA. Sure. So we, when you do these kind of trials, you do what's called intention to treat, which is you analyze by the group they were assigned to, but then you also can analyze by compliance, which is per protocol, a per protocol kind of analysis. If I gave you the DHA and you took it, did you get the benefit that was hypothesized? And that is called a secondary analysis, and we will definitely be looking at the results from our trial both ways. That is And I very think from that we'll get some idea of whether uh, we need to target that. We did get the impression from our 2006 trial that we needed to somehow do a better job reaching African-American women with the message. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring this up because the University of Missouri has a wonderful journalism school. And there was a researcher here years ago who was looking at how to get breast cancer information specifically to African-American women. And one of the channels that they used effectively was beauty parlors. They found that that was a place where African women gathered and where they received a lot of good peer-to-peer information. 
So it is very important, as you say, to not only do the research, but then be able to apply it. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. So we'll have to work on this. And hopefully by doing radio programs like this and getting the word out through media, we can change the population. I think that it's so interesting that in addition to preterm births that can be reduced, we also see differences in children in their cognitive assessments. So let's talk about that. What kinds of differences did you see among children in terms of maybe better school performance when their mothers were supplemented prenatally and even as children if they were supplemented? Well, as I mentioned when we talked before, we and by we, this is Dr. John Colombo's main lead on our cognitive assessments, but we use very targeted tests for looking at memory, for looking at distractibility, attention. Attention is a really incredible part of cognitive function because if children pay attention better, obviously they can learn better. We have not done tests in school age to look at school performance because that would be considered, to me, a rather soft kind of indicator. Mm -hmm. But what we have found is that attention is different when children get DHA and arachidonic acid in their formula, they have better attention, they have lower distractibility. Even in some cases, we found that the children who were in the control group who didn't get it actually couldn't even do some of the tasks, so we couldn't even include their results. And nevertheless, mm-hmm. the ones that did do the task, we were able to still show a cognitive benefit. Mm. So I think... There's no doubt in my mind that in the era of mothers not getting supplementation that it was very important to have DHA and arachidonic acid in infant formula. Now we are actually in a fairly good position across the country because virtually all babies get DHA and arachidonic acid either from their mother's milk or from infant formula And then, in addition, we have a large number of women taking a couple hundred milligrams of DHA during their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So we've seen an an improvement. Between 2006 and 2016, we've seen women entering our trials with a much higher DHA status. And to me, that is a very good thing. Mm, I agree. Now, how did you come up with the recommendation to take a couple of hundred milligrams I know in a, on a lot of the dietary supplements that are on the market, it's about it's for cardiovascular health largely, and you usually see maybe 1,000 milligram or tablets, often in combination DHA and EPA. But just so our listeners have an idea, if they're pregnant, how much should they be taking? If they're breastfeeding, how much should they be taking? And if they want to rely on their diet, what I find is that a lot of times women will say, well, you know, I really don't like to eat fish. And then there's concern about mercury too. So in terms of some concrete recommendations for women who might be listening, for pregnant and breastfeeding women, I'm assuming the recommendation is the same and just a couple of hundred milligrams a day? Let me answer this question in a different way. Sure. So the first thing I want to point out is Yesterday, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee released their report, and they say in no uncertain terms, pregnant women should be eating fish if possible during pregnancy. So maybe we can start there. Sure. Salmon, 
is a very good source. It is not a high mercury food, but I was a participant in a a couple of systematic reviews that we published earlier this year that looked across the globe in all the studies of fish consumption during pregnancy, and we found no adverse effects of women eating fish, and keeping in mind that in many of these countries, the fish they were eating actually had mercury. Mm -hmm. So I don't really want to get into the subject of mercury. I don't want people to feel that anything is unsafe that they take, but there are low mercury fish in the U.S. market, and we have provided guides. We, by say we, I mean the country, has guidance for women on what fish to avoid during pregnancy, and that's very few different fish. It's very large fish like tile and shark and so on, which uh, I don't even find in my market anyway. Salmon, tuna is not disallowed, above six ounces. You can go up to six ounces on tuna. So there's there's good evidence, and I do believe the Dietary Guidelines Committee is trying to emphasize food. Now, good. those of us who work on DHA know that, yes, fish has other nutrients besides DHA, and there could be a debate on whether you should eat fish or you should take DHA. The one thing I would say is we have looked now at about a thousand women in this recent trial, and the DHA intake from food is 60 milligrams per day, which is way low. And from that, I conclude that at least women in Kansas City are not eating seafood during pregnancy. Right. So therefore, we need to start thinking about the supplements. So coming to your question of why 200, I think that's kind of a best guess. I mean, a couple hundred milligrams per day is what's in many current prenatals. And our current trial is actually designed to test, is 1,000 milligrams per day better than 200 milligrams per day? If you are at risk for preterm birth, I would recommend more like 500 milligrams per day. But I don't know the answer yet until this trial is finished, whether there's going to be an additional benefit in taking that higher amount. That is our hypothesis. But the study is designed to ask the question, can we reduce birth before 34 weeks? Mm-hmm. So as far as cognitive benefit, I don't know that we're not asking that question. So okay. I think 200 milligrams per day would be a certain improvement over most U.S. women's diet. Mm-hmm. And two to 300 is what's in most prenatals. So I think that's a safe amount to take and a conservative amount at the moment until we know more. Dr. Carlson, we just have a minute left, and I want to give that minute to you to tell our listeners anything that I might have omitted. I think you have done a very good job of asking me questions about cognitive development and preterm birth, which is really where the story has been for the last maybe 20 years on DHA. I think we're getting every year more information, and so far, the information is all positive around this nutrient. Wonderful. I I will provide a link to your website at the KU Medical Center where many of your research papers are posted for people who want to learn more, and we will look for future updates for your terrific research. So thank you for that. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in downtown Columbia. 
And I want to thank in particular my guest, Dr. Susan Carlson, Associate Dean for Research at the University of Kansas School of Health Professions and Distinguished Professor and A.J. Rice Professor of Nutrition in the KU Department of Dietetics and Nutrition at the KU Medical Center. Thank you so much for being my guest and sharing your expertise. Thank you. Thank you.